So I have always been a great, great swooning romantic, and I blame this on two things. The first thing is my parents are those kind of rare freaks who were really in love with each other, who were married. And um, they've been together for 30 years. They've never been apart for more than a week. And my mum sleeps, when he's away, sleeps with a jumper of his, with his aftershave on. <laughs> I knew it would be a bit mixed what that reaction would be. And um, my dad, I said to my dad recently, why don't you go to dinner parties? And he said, because the only person in the room I ever want to talk to, who's always the most interesting and the most funny and the most clever, is your mother. And I always get sat next to some other person's boring battle axe wife. And I just want to be sitting next to her. So basically, my mum and dad screwed me up. <laughs> because when you see a relationship like that, I think it makes you... It's very daunting and it's uh, very inspiring. You have very, very high expectations for what, what you get out of love. I also trace it back to a moment when I was seven years old uh, with my grandma in her house in Birmingham at Christmas, and we were watching The King and I. And do you remember the... Um, of course you don't. Who watches The King and I? Um, there's a scene where they're waltzing around a ballroom, and she's wearing this extraordinary dress. And I remember my grandma saying to me, can you see that? That's the happiest a girl can be in her entire life. <laughs> so... That lodged something in my head, and I became this kind of swoonsome romantic. Um, I became like hooked on Doris Day and Rock Hudson films when I was like eight years old. Uh, I remember doing a show and tell at school about Gene Kelly's performance of Singing in the Rain when I was like 10, um, and, which is also why I think I have so many gay friends now. Um, and, <laughs> and I think, and then I got into adolescence, and uh, the obsession got, got more and more deep and overwhelming. I just, I knew that the most exciting thing on earth was romance and having a boyfriend. The only problem was, A, I lived in Stanmore, which, um, did someone just whoop for Stanmore? <laughs> wow. Um, what, sorry? Ironically. So, um, as my friend can tell you, Stanmore is the most boring place on earth. It's the end of the Jubilee line. It's just on the kind of precipice of North London. Uh, and there is nothing there other than shopping centres, uh, Italian chain restaurants, and the odd Hollywood Bowl. So that was the first problem, being a diehard romantic in Stanmore. Um, the second is that I was at an all-girls school. But then MSN Messenger came, which was a instant messaging service um, where you just, it was just like very rudimentary. Um, and there, I don't know how, but I started to get boys' email addresses, even though I didn't know any boys. And I think when I was kind of tracing back the story, I think it was from girls at school who either sort of quite charitably gave us email addresses of their like male neighbours or their second cousin or their godmother's son. Um, or there was a bit of a kind of black market trading thing going on where you would girls would use it to kind of... Um, climb the social echelons. They would hand out these kind of email addresses. And then I had these very long, intense, virtual relationships with these sort of phantom boys, of which I only met about two, I think. But some of them went on for years and years. Um, and then I got to 16, and I 
decided that virtual wasn't enough anymore and I had to um, smell and touch and see them in the flesh. I mean, I was literally a woman obsessed. Uh, so I went to a co-ed boarding school, persuaded my parents, and I got there and I was like ready for my big love affair to happen. Sadly, they didn't feel the same about me. Um, to my shame, I took politics AS level because I'd been tipped off that that's where it was the highest volume of boys in the class. So there were two, in my first politics AS um, lesson, there were two girls, 15 boys, and the most handsome boy in the room passed a note across the classroom so everyone could see with a heart on it to me. And I just thought I'd arrived. I just thought I have been preparing for this role for a lifetime. I'm going to be the most handsome boy's girlfriend, obviously. And um, I opened it up, and it was a drawing of an orc from Lord of the Rings. And it said, you look like this. <laughs> My friend's marrying him next year, actually. Anyway, um, so that didn't go as planned. So I still, it, there was still no success, but I was still obsessed. And then I got to university, and uh, boys finally kind of reciprocated the attention. And I was obviously like uh, an uncut bull in a china shop. Uh, my best friend, Farley, who I'd grown up with in the suburbs, came to university with me. And just to show you quite how desperate we were when we arrived, I'm going to tell you a story. There was, on the first night, there was a traffic light party where you come dressed in red if you're taken, uh, green if you're single, and orange if you're undecided. Farley arrived with uh, green hairspray, green tights, green dress, green nail varnish. So she basically had, I need to lose my virginity, written across her forehead. So that was how we were charged. And I think I went really off the rails with boys at university because I've heard Russell Brand say he was like a bit of a loser, chubby teenage kid. And he said that a lot of that is the reason why he was so promiscuous when he was older, because he said every time he was in a social situation or even in bed with a woman, he saw this like little fat kid being like, do it for me. <laughs> Like, and also I think there's a bit of a fear of like, this might go, you've got to just grab it while you can, literally. So, um, kind of boy obsessed, went a bit off the rails, then moved back to, moved back to London with my friend Farley. And um, it was kind of like having, having an adult world where I could do all these adult things I'd always wanted to do, like go on dates. Uh, it was like in Home Alone 2 when Macaulay Culkin is in that in New York on his own and he just like watches gangster films and like orders like ice cream sundaes. That's how I behaved as an adult. And while my friends kind of grew up and uh, they all kind of shifted into monogamy, I just got more and more and more chaotic. And I think I had associated for such a long time love with drama, with intensity. I became obsessed with unrequited love, with wild flings, with lots of attention. You know, I, th I thought that love was meant to be incredibly huge highs and then very low lows. And then the worst thing happened for someone like me is that I got given a dating column, which basically meant I was paid to be dysfunctional for a good story. Um, and the only steady love of my life during this time were my female friends who I lived with. Um, and that's where I was kind of learning about how to have grown-up relationships. That's where I was learning about compromise and trust and uh, intimacy. Um, and then the crazy stuff that I did for men in this period of about a decade, uh, there was one incident where I was at a party and I didn't want the party to end, so I texted a boy that I fancied 
who was at university in Warwickshire, and the party was in Finsbury Park. So naturally, I got in a cab to Leamington Spa. <laughs> Not an Uber, though, so moral high ground. Um, <laughs> but it was 2009. Um, so that's one of the crazy things I did. I went to New York uh, with no money and with, on my own and uh, went on loads of insane Tinder dates there and a man proposed to me and I very, very nearly accepted. This was all stuff that I thought what love was. I interviewed a guru, a relationships and intimacy guru and um, who was kind of old enough to be my dad for a women's magazine, had this bizarre relationship on the phone with him for about a month. Then we met up and he broke my heart. Who could have seen that coming? Uh, it will be no surprise to anyone that at 27 I ended up in therapy. And um, I had no idea where I was there. I just thought, I was just anxious all the time. And it just felt like while everyone's, everyone else's lives were kind of coming together, mine was just falling apart more the, the, the further I ventured into my 20s. And within 10 minutes, this woman said to me, your problem is you don't know how to relate to men. And in that moment, I had this flashback of watching films of kind of Disney princesses when I was little, and my grandma saying that to me about the king and I, and sitting endlessly until my, my eyes went bloodshot on MSN Messenger, talking to these boys, and um, all the rom-coms I watched when I was hungover in my 20s, and staring at boys across politics classes who were drawing doodles of orcs. Um, and it just all suddenly kind of made sense to me. And I realized that romance had been packaged and sold to me as the thing that makes life exciting, the thing that makes you feel worthy, the thing that makes you feel kind of whole and complete. And they were these kind of mystical, magical, alien creatures that I just didn't really know how to relate to. They were there to provide me a service, and the service was sex and romance. Um, so... My therapist suggested that I took a year out of dating and she was extremely scary and expensive, so I just said yes. Um, and that was a year ago this month. And what was strange is it was only when I stopped pursuing love, like a mad woman, I realized that there was all this love in my life that I hadn't been tre treasuring. And in a way, this last year has been kind of the most romantic year of my life and I realized that you know like yesterday I got a call from my mum I actually got five calls from my mum asking me if I'd got tinned food in the house because of the snow um, and small moments like that like when I was ill for the first time and after I kind of decided to take the sabbatical I remember these beautiful irises turned up on my doorstep from Farley um, and there was just, oh yeah, and then I moved in on my own and I realized there's this kind of everyday love that I feel with the place that I live and there's this like lovely square at the end of my road where I go and sit and have a coffee in the morning and look at how the seasons change. And I know this sounds very cheesy, but I just, I hadn't treasured. I was so busy looking for all this other love that I hadn't realized I had it right there the whole time. Um, so I think what I've learned is that we place, I think women in particular, uh, it's forced on us, we place such a premium on uh, romantic love. And I think we do ourselves a bit of a disservice there because what then happens is you think of all the other stuff, 
having dinner with your friend, being on the phone to your mum, drinking coffee in your favourite square in London as a way of killing time. And you think of it as a way of kind of filling in the gaps in between the moments that really matter, which are always to do with romance and sex in the narratives that we're fed. Um, so I think... And also the irony is as well, I don't want to sound like too much for Debbie Downer, but the irony is we invest so much in these romantic relationships and it's not looking that good for heterosexual monogamy. If you look at divorce rates, it's quite likely it's going to let you down. And I just think it's so insane that, that, we could, that we'll often put, we'll lose ourselves, we'll lose our minds, we'll humiliate ourselves. Um, all for this, this romantic venture, um, when really, obviously it's important, like I'm hoping I'll have romance at some point again in my life, but I think it's also really important to treasure and spend time and attention and care on all the other different types of love in your life and to not play a game of kind of emotional supremacy with your relationships of one being more important than the other. You know, it all makes you grow. It should all make you grow. It, all of it should make you feel safe. All of it should feel like an adventure sometimes. And all of it needs treasuring. I am now in the 11th hour of my 20s. Yesterday marked six months before I'm 30, but who's counting? And uh, I've written a memoir about growing up called Everything I Know About Love. And uh, it's a great love story in my opinion. Not great as in good, as in big. Um, <laughs> it's a grand love story in my opinion. Uh, which I never thought I would ever have the material for, but it turned out I did. But it's nothing to do with men. It's about uh, the women in my life, my female friends, who've carried me through the last decade. And it's kind of an ode to female friendship. It's an ode to the kind of claustrophobic, hedonistic, infuriating, beautiful, relaxing, calming, amazing thing that is female friendship. And the best part of writing it has been so many girls have been messaging me to say that it has helped them realize that they are enough as they are and they don't need to be going to New York and having a, proposer, a stranger propose to them or speaking to boys on MSN all day. I mean, who even uses MSN anymore? Generation Z don't even know when, what I'm talking about when I say that. It's like I'm talking about an ancient scroll. Um, <laughs> You know, they don't need to get in, you know, empty their overdraft and get in a cab at the end of the night to go to Leamington Spa. They don't need to do any of these things to feel whole or worthy or happy. And often they tell me that it's made them cherish those other relationships in their life, particularly their female friendships, much more. The only thing that's very infuriating is most of them are about 21. <laughs> so... Uh, I didn't get there until right now, so I'm 29. But I'm very glad that I did finally get there. And uh, I hope every woman in this room gets there, if you haven't got there yet. Thank you.